everyone. This is Sean Dubervac with the Avrio Institute. And I'm Ross Rubin at Reticle Research. You're here for another episode of Techspansive, where we're going to dive in this week to Apple's Worldwide Developers Conference. The virtual WWDC. Yeah, the, the first virtual WWDC, uh, perhaps not the last. I thought they did a really good job with the presentation online. It was very smooth. The transitions were cool. In some ways, it was, you know, I've, I've been to a few WWDC keynotes, and I, I thought in some ways this was easier to follow than actually being there live. Uh, but, but it's definitely a different vibe, and I guess just like professional sports, you lose something without having the audience there cheering, cheering on the home team, as it were. Well, I thought it was interesting where, you, you know, a couple of things. One, we, we talked about Apple's culture and Apple's culture seems to be a little different than some of the other Silicon Valley tech companies that are saying you can work from home forever. Apple is saying you're going to work in the office. They have this beautiful Steve Jobs theater in their new building that they want to use for these type of events. And, uh, and so I, I think that there will be a desire to have people in the audience. Apple, above all company events, seems to get the roar of a crowd at even the most subtle of s s small announcements. You know, they can, they can get claps for, uh, yes. for announcing things that uh, some feel like they should have announced years ago or, you know, or something <laughs> like that. So, and, um, but it was interesting just to see the camera production, like when Tim Cook was talking. Drones. Yeah. And, and Tim Cook, Tim, when Tim Cook was talking in the in the uh, theater, they actually turned it around, so he wasn't on stage as if he were presenting to a live audience. But they created kind of a unique fireside chat with imp show, showing the empty seats. I thought that was kind of an interesting turn of of camera. So, mm -hmm. and uh, you know, invoking uh, Mr. Jobs uh, in terms of the theater. Uh, I remembered uh, when they announced the transition, when Steve Jobs announced the transition uh, from PowerPC uh, to Intel uh, processors for the Mac and talked about how uh, ever since the release of OS X, uh, Apple engineers had been working on a version of it, of that operating system that ran on Intel processors uh, and how favorably that was received by the crowd when uh, Jobs announced that they were transitioning to Intel processors because uh, PowerPC had, had fallen far behind uh, in, in terms of performance. So Apple really didn't have much of a choice. Uh, and uh, I'm sure there would have been uh, at least as enthusiastic a reaction to the announcement at this WWDC that the Mac is transitioning, uh, probably its last transition, uh, to, uh, to Apple Silicon uh, so that they will be on the the same processor platform as basically everything else Apple makes, uh, the iPad and iPhone in particular. So, so this is uh, this is definitely a, a big transition. A lot of engineering at work. A lot of uh, tricks that they're pulling out of their bag uh, that they used in the PowerPC to Intel transition. Uh, but uh, but it's a very different world for Apple. You know when uh, they made that transition. The Mac was essentially their entire business, uh, and now it is a relatively small part of their business. So in some ways, the stakes are, are a lot lower. Yeah, and, and it's interesting that they're, one, doing the transition now, where a lot of people have been anticipating this transition for some time, 
And then also that they're going to carry that transition over a very long time horizon. And instead of making a rather abrupt shift, they're going to carry it out over uh, two years. I think. Two, two years. I, I think that's the same amount of time that they had estimated for Intel. And I'm not sure what they actually meant. I don't recall what they actually meant by completing the transition back then, but I, I think it was basically getting the entire product line. Uh, on on Intel, and now, uh, but but for this one, to your point, Sean, they say that they're going to continue to produce Intel-based Macs. So the question becomes, what Macs will those be? Will they be desktops or notebooks? Uh, based on the focus on performance per watt of of the Apple Silicon, I'd be inclined to believe that the uh, the Intel-based machines would be reserved primarily for uh, the, the most performance demanding machines for which there's a lot of optimized uh, Intel software, Intel optimized software for the Mac, uh, namely, you know, the high-end iMac desktops and, and probably the Mac Pro. Um, in terms of the notebooks, we see a lot of the same rationale uh, that we've seen from Microsoft and Qualcomm in launching uh, ARM-based notebooks and two-in-ones, namely, uh, you know, longer battery life, um, thinner form factors, um, and, and the, the ability to imbue the devices with more artificial intelligence, uh, because these are all things that they have been focused on in their phone uh, processors. Yeah, obviously, the, a big change is that it will allow iPad OS apps and uh, and iOS apps to run essentially natively seamlessly in that Mac OS environment in the future. So you'll be able to uh, have that kind of same experience. And, and it does speak to the, the blurring of lines that we've talked about happening across all of these devices as, as the devices morph in not only form factor and, and functionality, but also in, in function and how we're using them. Yeah, it raises a great question, which is uh, already there's been winnowing differentiation between using, say, an iPad with a keyboard attached and a Mac, you know, so uh, or a Mac notebook. So, so uh, it's funny because earlier in the keynote, uh, they had been talking about uh, this initiative called Project Catalyst that is supposed to make it easier to convert iPad apps into Mac apps. So the question becomes, if the developer has to do a little bit of work to create a native Mac app uh, versus no work to just have their iPad app work on the Mac, is that really going to um, serve as a disincentive uh, for Mac uh, application development? And uh, it's funny, when, when Catalyst was announced, there was a big hue and cry by a lot of people saying, oh, you know, this is the death of the Mac. People aren't going to produce native Mac software anymore. And sure enough, with this uh, idea that iPad applications will run uh, essentially unchanged uh, on, on these Apple Silicon Macs, those cries have just intensified, you know, that basically, uh, you know, they're, they're particularly with the much smaller market of the Mac, uh, why, why would developers bother making the effort? 
or does this drive up the desire of, to have a Mac that you can have a, a Mac laptop that will run all of your apps seamlessly, the many, many of the ones you're relying on on a regular basis. And so you actually see ownership rates increase for the Mac, which then creates a bigger addressable market for some of that software and and then drives to actually drives development because you've got people who are transitioning over for the app use and and the seamlessness there but a lot yes it, it in theory it expands the market but i think even in a, a best case for most apps it's just going to be incremental but it does lead uh to another question i have and i'd, I'd love to get your take on this uh which is when the iPad was first introduced, one of the things that really distinguished it was that it was just far less expensive uh, than a Mac. You know, it was a $500 product at a time when, you know, the cheapest Mac was, was probably about twice that. And the price of the Mac hasn't really changed. You know, it starts at about $900 or $1,000, whereas you can get a baseline iPad for $250. Um, so the question becomes, does Apple take advantage of the savings in the bill of materials now that they don't have to pay Intel for the processors and they can leverage their own technology uh, to come down a bit, uh, become a little bit more aggressive with Mac pricing. Now, obviously they're not gonna go head to head with $200 you know, entry level uh, Windows notebooks or Chromebooks, but there's a lot of wiggle room there. Uh, do you think uh, they might get more aggressive and try to tap into that appeal that the iPad has had, just simply the cost uh, cost effectiveness. I, I think, yeah, I think that's definitely a possibility. I would have said under the Steve Jobs leadership, no, that won't happen because mm. they were disinclined to uh, lower price on pretty much anything. They were always looking to to add features and drive more premium in the product categories than than remove it. But I could see uh, definitely under Tim Cook's leadership you've seen a, a widening of SKUs of, available across all their product categories. And so you could easily imagine them uh, offering more SKUs within that Mac, that Mac family. And, uh, and, and that could have varying price points that will drive people to then self-select into where they, you know, where they want to be in that, that suite. Well, I think, I think if they could even, you know, bring out something at around the $700 price point, you know, very much the mid-range of uh, the PC market. I mean, that that would be huge uh, in, in terms of uh, potentially expanding the Mac share. And uh, also to touch on uh, a point that, you know, you've raised uh, a number of times here uh, on, uh, on the podcast, Sean, uh, this is perhaps, it's not even so much about expanding their PC market share per se, uh, but more about making sure that their user is never really in a situation where they cannot tap into the Apple services uh, that they are uh, subscribing to. So, so even today, you know, they have Apple Arcade on the Mac, they have Apple TV Plus on the Mac, they of course have Apple Music on the Mac. So. Uh, and you know who knows what else they will launch, but um, those uh, those services are um, may, may be tougher to to access if you're on a Windows machine. Uh, so uh, this this definitely gives them the home court advantage when people are 
producing the kinds of things they produce on a PC as opposed uh, to uh, to an iPad. Well, and to your to your point, maybe that's part of the motivation for why now is they're hmm. really starting to to uh, double down, if you will, invest in those services and trying to grow the the service part of their business, and so to be able to allow users to seamlessly engage with those services across whatever hardware they're using will, will be an important motivation to, to maintain those services through Apple. So I, I could see that being a, a key value proposition for, for the Apple universe of, of products. The, the other uh, thing to keep in mind in terms of why now uh, is simply that uh, Apple has just done a superb job uh, in, the, in the processor uh, market in the silicon market, uh, they came in uh, basically uh, greenfield. You know, they had never produced uh, their own processors before, and over the course of ten years, they have uh, just done an excellent job in terms of both uh, driving performance and performance per watt. So, um, you know, certainly, uh, you know, while we mentioned the Mac Pro, I think within two years from now, the overwhelming majority of new sales um, will will be Apple Silicon Macs. And I think they intend to drive it much further into the portfolio uh, than we have seen so far with Microsoft and, uh, and Qualcomm uh, on, on the PC side. But, you know, there are a few things at play there. Uh, Apple, you know, while I think Qualcomm and Microsoft have had a, a good partnership, um, obviously, having everything under one roof gives uh, Apple a little bit more leeway in terms of, of making changes. Uh, and uh, it seems they, they're doing a, a very good job with the emulation or virtualization. That was a challenge that uh, plagued some of the early Qualcomm-based uh, PCs. Uh, and, um, and so, uh, you know, while, while Qualcomm is introducing new PC chipsets that should allow them to reach lower price points. Uh, it, I, I think that, you know, this isn't just a notebook play for them. We're, we're going to see it in uh, a significant number of desktop units for them as well. Yeah. And, and to your point, other devices that may come out. I mean, this builds out the potential to, to start to look at other devices beyond uh, the the devices that we know today, the, mm -hmm. phones, the phones and tablets and, and right. laptops. Uh, of course, um, much rumored augmented reality headsets and right. VR headsets also uh, in the queue. Uh, the last, speaking uh, particularly of that, uh, the Mac has also been something of a, um, an exception in, in Apple's product line in that uh, it's been their only major device that has not had uh, cellular connectivity. So, uh, as, uh, as they transition to their own chipsets, as they transition to, uh, their own 5G modems, uh, you know, it's always been a mystery to me why they never offered a, a Mac with, uh, 4G connectivity. Uh, instead they worked on making the tethering bridge to the iPhone, uh, more, more transparent. Uh, but it's, you know, particularly in this age of, uh, eSIM, uh, it totally makes sense to, to have uh, cellular connectivity on board. And it certainly uh, makes sense to have a, a 5G uh, cellular uh, option on board. So um, 
I'm sure uh, that particularly once uh, Apple's uh, current licensing deal, or maybe even uh, over the course of the current licensing deal with Qualcomm for 5G modems, uh, we, will, uh, we will likely see that start to come to Apple's product line. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, you're right that um, there's a lot to come here and it'll be interesting to see where that cellular connectivity goes, especially as we think about the future of work and, you know, working remotely, working wherever you're at. Right, in this environment. Yeah, have good. And the the security of that and the dedicated bandwidth of that, you know, also big algorithms. Well, in other announcements from WWDC this this week, uh, we saw major revisions coming to iOS in uh, iOS 14. Now, Ross, you're a longtime Android user, so many of these changes that are coming to iOS are reminiscent of what we've seen. Yeah, we had widgets <laughs> since the first version of Android, you know, and I, I expected that uh, there would be a, a lot of reaction like that. Um, you know, I've, I've was also an iPhone user uh, for many years. Still, of course, uh, you know, dabble in that pro- uh, product line. Uh, the um, uh, well, you know, it's important to remember that. Actually, speaking of the Mac again, by the way, probably the the biggest benefit of the Apple Silicon transition is it's getting people talking about the Mac again. Uh, the yeah. uh, uh, you know, Apple had widgets uh, in a feature called uh, Dashboard many years ago, uh, and kind of still has it today. So they, they've had widgets on their platform for a long time uh, in, in their defense. Uh, and also in their defense, uh, they've done some neat things uh, with, with the implementation of widgets. Uh, the coolest thing, I think, is something called uh, widget stacks. So you can, because they have uh, a little more constraint over how what size the widgets can be, uh, so you don't have quite the level of flexibility in terms of resizing you have on Android. But the benefit of that is that you can stack, you know, three or four, even more of these things on top of each other and just switch among them uh, with, with a you know, flick of, of your finger. Uh, so it's pretty cool if you want a lot of uh, information, um, easily glanceable and, and don't want to have to take up a lot of uh, screen uh, real estate. So, so that's one nice advantage. Yeah, I liked the uh, what they're doing with the app library where you can, uh, you know, they're giving you greater customization and, and control over how you uh, see things and being able to kind of bury certain apps that you may not want to, to see. Right. We all Remove have the, certain home screens, which has also been an Android feature for, right. for many years. Yeah. Right, exactly. And in an Apple, we've solved that with the, you know, Apple junk folder that probably most people have on their yes. phones or their bearing. I have one. Yes. Right. Um, so that's interesting. Uh, I, I saw where they're adding checkboxes. So I think that's kind of interesting as far as, uh, and I think this has been a big problem in the current environment is that now that people are, are working from home, working remotely, they are, are working longer hours and, uh, and kind of living this always on uh, lifestyle. And so this allows you to, uh, to ch- maybe you have a, a work section on your phone that you can uh, check and uncheck as the weekend uh, arrives. And so you're not, you're not seeing some of those, those apps, you know, maybe that's where you've got the, the zoom apps and the Slack apps buried and you can kind of shut those down for the weekend to try to create some separation 
in a, from, you know, work life balance in a, in a world that uh, right now is kind of difficult to do that for, for many people. So I think that could be an interesting use case scenario. Uh, we're seeing a lot of new uh, map features. Obviously, Apple has invested a tremendous amount. They've had uh, leadership changes there in the last couple of years and, and invested a lot in that. They're adding uh, a cycling feature and an electric vehicle feature that you can find where charging stations are. And obviously, uh, with cycling, they'll uh, add things like elevation, so you can know if it's a it's a big hill. So as as a cyclist, that's kind of a nice feature. And and to me, it it shows you know Apple's continued interest in the fitness space and and health and wellness space and trying to integrate those. Uh, I, I keep waiting to see when they're going to buy Garmin how outright and, and try to take over the whole tracking watch tracking sports tracking well uh, yeah they had they had their opportunity with fitbit right right, I mean, right when that was on the block they they passed on that so i don't know yeah and the, maybe so there's we'll, more ip at garmin so. yeah well i i look at like, <laughs> garmin has a very strong uh stronghold on the the hardcore athlete the, the right. marathoner or the ultra right. marathoner and so we'll see if if apple would like that space apple has always been uh <clears throat> two struggles were uh, on the, on the watch side was waterproof which they solved making the, the watch waterproof so you could use it in in uh activities and swimming and sweating swimming. And, yeah. yeah and then extending the battery life which is something they'll have to you know continue to to work on in order to really take over some of that space because last thing you want to do while you're competing in a 15 hour ultra marathon is have your watch die because the GPS killed the battery 10 hours into it. Uh, one, one of the uh, trends we've been talking about in terms of Apple and beyond Apple uh, has been the integration of machine learning and algorithms uh, into uh, a lot of these devices. And uh, that certainly played a role in one of the new features uh, of the Apple Watch, which is the ability to measure GANs. Uh, and they uh, did a, a pretty cool demonstration where they showed how they could tap into different sensors on the watch to understand the calories being burned by a dance, even when you were only using certain parts of the body. So even if you weren't flailing your arms around uh, very aggressively, and just sort of like tilting as, as you moved your legs, uh, they, they could use the various uh, gyroscope and, and accelerometer uh, sensors uh, to uh, get a, um, a more accurate view of, of the activity uh, you, you were doing. Uh, the, other, the other example of uh, advanced uh, machine learning that uh, an algorithmic uh, calculations uh, that uh, was revealed during the keynote was a new feature coming to the AirPods, uh, which uh, AirPods Pro, which is uh, spatial audio. And, um, you know, we have seen uh, many headphones in the past offer multi-channel sound, uh, but uh, it's a pretty, Apple is unsurprisingly taking a pretty sophisticated approach where it is looking at the angle and position of your head uh, at any given time and calculating it against the angle and position of the device that you're holding, uh, I guess assuming that it's an Apple device, uh, so, such as an iPad, 
uh, and uh, compensating in real time so that uh, you know you, you get a, a sense of when the when the audio is coming from the side of your head versus behind you versus on top of you and they did mention support for dolby atmos so i'm guessing they have become a licensee of uh, dolby atmos I don't, I don't know if that was the case in the past well and i i noticed at this year's wwdc that apple was doing a lot around using sound to hmm. uh, create it create experiences so even with their uh new watch feature which will track hand washing they're using the mic on the on the uh, watch to listen for the sound of of splashing mute, uh, splashing water so you do see them using kind of other data other sensors and other data to uh to kind of incorporate new feature sets uh, the other thing we saw coming from AirPods was their ability to seamlessly switch devices. That is a cool feature. That, that yeah. is a, yeah, a very cool feature. That'd be very nice. And, I, and obviously plays well for people who are constantly switching between uh, their iPhone and, and their you know, I, the iPad or, or something else. So I think that is a, a very nice feature. And, and Apple always does uh, a pretty good job at seamless transitions and so that that will be a, a nice feature to have. It's uh, it's definitely a differentiator for them, given that Bluetooth functionality in general has been catching up on a lot of the things that distinguished the first AirPods, such as the auto discovery. Uh, a lot of those kinds of features are coming into the Bluetooth standard proper, so that uh, many more competitors can do those kinds of tricks now. So it's important for Apple to uh, to stay ahead in that way. Another thing we saw coming from Apple is their debut of digital car key coming to iOS 13 and iOS 14. Uh, they've, they've already been doing it in a limited way with BMW. So if you drive a BMW, you'll be able to use that. But we'll we'll see that coming out more and just a broad expansion into uh, to uh, what they're doing with home automation. So to, to me, those are kind of tied to a bigger theme around connecting to other other devices outside of the the ecosystem, the Apple ecosystem, and, and trying to pull in, uh, you know, a broader array of devices and create a more seamless experience where you can use your Apple devices in conjunction with, with other hardware that you might not have historically not used. I thought, I thought it was uh, an interesting contrast, and in both cases, uh, somewhat uncharacteristically for Apple, uh, emphasizing industry alliances, mm -hmm. uh, something they're not generally known for embracing. So uh, certainly in the home, uh, they explicitly mentioned uh, an initiative with Google and Amazon, uh, their ecosystem rivals, to uh, set a, a home automation standard that HomeKit will be, I guess, future compatible with uh, to um, enable a lot of this home control uh, while preserving privacy, uh, which of course is one of their uh, key focus areas and differentiators. Uh, and they also mention, oh, and that by the way, um, is really focused on home builders, right? So each of those companies has had some good success uh, selling products into the home. But uh, what this allows what this new standard will allow is for uh building 
you know, new construction to, to put in the standard uh, this way, whoever buys the house, you know, you don't have to know in advance whether they're an Android person or an Apple person or if they like to use Alexa devices. So that's really what's driving the cooperation there. And in the car example, uh, they mentioned that this was uh, using ultra-wideband uh, technology. I think it's the first I've heard of Apple using that, a new chip um, to, uh, to generate uh, the, the, those, uh, those radio uh, signals and um, uh, mentioned that it, it is part of uh, another standard um, that, uh, that the company is working towards. So while again, uh, the Apple BMW partnership uh, may be the first example, uh, we may be seeing many other phones on other operating systems uh, having this uh, functionality in the future. And, you know, Sean, uh, we, we were joking earlier about the idea of, you know, steal someone's phone, get, get their car for free, um, you know, as, as one of the potential risks. Uh, but but uh, there are also advantages, you know, the ability to, for example, create a virtual car key uh, and share it digitally uh, the same way that, uh, you know, someone can do with some of the door locks, uh, smart locks out on the market, or if you're an Airbnb host or, you know, something like that. So um, uh, much to come in terms of the phone, you know, closing, closing the gap and, and closing those few uh, remnants of, of dedicated devices uh, that, that we use in our lives, it seems. Well, and, I, and to your point, I mean, there are a lot of services right now that uh, where you're sharing vehicles across mm -hmm. the service. And so being able to just instantly send the key to your phone really, I think, opens up the, the possibility for some of those uh, car, oh, yeah. car renting services for, and also for, for car rentals, zip car. Yeah. yeah. And, and other like micro mobility services potentially as well. Yeah. So sure. Um, you could easily see that showing up on on campuses, for example, where if you're a student or if you're an employee, then you can can unlock the scooters or unlock certain devices. So there's probably some really interesting uh, subscription services that could could uh, develop from some of those features. And uh, funny you should mention uh, scooters because we got uh, in some non-Apple news. Uh, we we got a little bit of uh, sad news uh, this week that. Um, the Segway is, is finally uh, going, going away. Um, it, it failed to revolutionize cities the way that uh, was once predicted, but in many ways, I think it did pave the way for uh, a lot of these micro-mobility devices, uh, and so a lot of those bike lanes got built anyway. You know, there, there aren't many or any Segways uh, being, um, uh, being driven along them, but there's all manner of um, unusual conveyances uh, that, uh, that were not around back then in terms of these electric scooters and e-bikes and one wheels and, uh, and, and, and other, uh, other things, some of which borrow from that self-balancing uh, technology that, that Segway pioneered. Yep. Uh, in other Apple news, one of the things we saw, and it speaks to your point, Ross, of greater use of machine learning is they're now doing uh, sleep tracking coming to yep. watch, watch OS 7. So we're starting to see uh, more of that. And, and really, 
to your point, I think this is just the beginning for what Apple will start to do with uh, around machine learning and, and algorithms. And data. Yeah, and, and data. Yeah. Uh, and, and all while trying to balance the, their privacy thesis around how consumers want data used. They want the customization without the, the, the risk that their data will be used uh, against them, if you will, or, or in some ways that they didn't uh, specify. Yep, there was a, a lot of discussion and, and that pervaded the presentation. You know, there was a discussion of that in terms of the new version of Safari. There was discussion of that in terms of defining zones in the new camera uh, functionality in, in their home initiatives. Uh, and there was a uh, discussion about it uh, in terms of the translate uh, application. Uh, and, and so it continues a pattern that we've seen of Apple taking different kinds of services that we may have seen launch elsewhere. Uh, it's also a feature of maps, right? Um, so so it uh, continues a pattern of Apple taking features that may have debuted elsewhere, but taking steps such as doing the calculation on device uh, in order to minimize any uh, privacy risk. Yeah. And so probably a lot more to come there. We're seeing some of the early applications and, uh, and more to come. Well, that's probably a good place to wrap it up. Uh, Ross, we've had a lot of announcements. We'll see more as some of these features move into to public beta in, in July and people will be able to, uh, to try about this. We'll certainly have more to say on this topic. Uh, but for now, uh, thanks for joining another episode of Techspansive. Again, I'm Sean Dubrovac. You can find me on Twitter at Sean Dubrovac. And I'm Ross Rubin. You can find me on Twitter at Ross Rubin. Tune in next week for another episode of Techspansive. <laughs>